Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the latest on the Trump impeachment saga. Also, shakedown in Russian politics. What does it mean for the rest of the world? And Peter McKay announces he is in for the conservative leadership race. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, what is the latest on the Trump impeachment saga? There is new uh, information coming out this morning, and uh, I'm not sure if that will affect things moving forward, but the Government Accountability Office says the uh, Office of Management and Budget violated the law by withholding up that uh, that aid for Ukraine, which is how this uh, whole impeachment thing got started in the first place with uh, a conversation between the president of Ukraine and the president of the United States. To talk more about all of this, Ross Baker is with us, distinguished professor of political science, Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and is with us now. Ross, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Morning, Scott. Your thoughts on this latest information that the uh, Trump administration violated the law in withholding uh, the Ukraine aid. Does this count because it's from a U.S. watchdog? Well, I think if it were from the Supreme Court, it would be greeted in a very different sort of way. The the, the the Government Accountability Office is an arm of Congress, uh, and they can make administrative decisions. And the decision in this case was that uh, that withholding the money violated the 1974 Act called the Budget and Impoundment Control Act. And what the president was doing was impounding money, that is, um, not spending money that Congress has appropriated. So this is an administrative decision uh, as to the legality of what the president did, but whether the Republicans uh, in Congress will consider it uh, a, uh, uh, a satisfactory um, explanation for what happened, I think, is another thing. So is this a moot point, then? It depends on what side you're on. It seems to be the, uh, the situation, whatever the issue is here. Well, you know, the, 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 the Government Accountability Office serves both the House and Senate. So let's say if it were, so, if it were an institution that were associated only with the House of Representatives, which is in the hands of the Democrats, I think the Republicans could just dismiss it out of hand. But the GAO is a bicameral institution. So I think they've got to take it much more seriously, and certainly I think it will strengthen the Democrats' case for the hearing of witnesses. Uh, how will Republicans react to this? There, it's been said that that's the that's the issue. Obviously, Mitch McConnell wants to close this down relatively quick. Some Republicans do want to call witnesses. Um, w- could this sway some people's minds who are perhaps sitting on the fence? Well, I remain to be persuaded about that. I mean, the, the Republicans are sticking as close to, to Donald Trump as a stamp to a love letter. And uh, I think that um, it's going to take, a, I think, a, a much greater uh, intervention by either the courts or some other institution to shake the Republicans. Uh, I, and they seem to be committed to, um, to um, uh, quitting him. Um, I think if they could, they would try to unimpeach him, but they can't do that. <laughs> But uh, right, right now, the, Demo- the Republicans are pretty much standing fast in the ranks, and we will see when, when, the, when the time comes whether or not they will accept witnesses and under what circumstances and which witnesses they will be. When will we find that out? Probably not for a few weeks, because we're, right, we're still now in the kind of ceremonial phase of the impeachment with the delivery of the articles of impeachment. Uh, today, of course, will be the... the uh, installation of the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, who will be sworn in by the President pro tempore of the Senate, uh, Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa. So it's basically now more more resembles uh, a kind of British parliamentary ritual than it does uh, a knockdown and drag out American political fight. Uh, your thoughts, and first we'll play a clip of Nancy Pelosi explaining uh, her reasoning for delay and whether that worked or not. Hang on, let's listen to Nancy Pelosi on this. Go ahead. For a long time, I resisted the calls from across the country for impeachment of the president for obvious violations of the Constitution that he had committed. But recognizing the divisiveness of impeachment, I held back. Frankly, I said, this president isn't worth it. 
Make it be very clear that this president will be held accountable, that no one is above the law, and uh, that no future president should ever entertain the idea that Article One, I mean, excuse me, Article Two, says that he can do whatever he wants. Uh, that is Nancy Pelosi. Ross Baker is with us, a distinguished professor of political science, Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Uh, in regard to that delay, Russ, uh, Ross, did that help or hurt the Democrats? Well, she really did resist. It's an honest statement on Speaker Pelosi's part. You know, there had been calls for Trump's impeachment almost as soon as he took his hand off the Bible. Um, there was a Democratic representative from Texas named Al Green, who I think it was in January uh, of of 2017 began to call for his impeachment and and Pelosi resisted it and and it was not until the whistleblower surfaced the person who overheard a telephone call in the White House suggesting there was some kind of deal going on uh, between um, between the president and the uh, uh, and the president of Ukraine uh, that Pelosi became convinced that Trump need, needed to be impeached. If uh... If, if would this have helped the Republicans in any way? The delay did it make did no, it make no, the Demo- think, did it make think, the, the Demo- did it make the Democrats look indecisive in any way? I think it gave the, I think it gave the Republicans some talking points. They were saying, well, you know, the you know the the Democrats were sort of hell bent for for impeachment, and now they're holding back. But I think looking back on it, I think Pelosi did the right thing because all kinds of things have surfaced in the interim between the day that they voted on the impeachment and the, today with the president with the presentation of the articles of impeachment um one of which of course is uh, something that happened very recently which was the release of a whole lot of documents from this man Lev Parnas who was working hand in hand with uh, the president's personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani um which suggests that the president knew very well uh that there were efforts to uh, undermine uh, the role of uh, our ambassador to the Ukraine, um, and uh, and the president was was very much aware of the kinds of behind the scenes activities were going on uh, to try to get um, the Ukrainians to open an investigation of Vice President Biden and his son. There's information on that on that note. There's information coming out today that uh, that the ambassador uh, to you, to the Ukraine was was actually being followed and surveillanced. Which uh, what do you make of that information? Right. Actually, this is something that President actually mentioned in the in the famous transcript of his telephone call with President Zelensky, uh, which was sort of the implication that bad things were going to happen to um, to Ambassador Ivanovich. Um, yeah, I think I think that they 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 believed that they needed to get rid of her because she was uh, really very much in earnest about dealing with uh, uh, political corruption in Ukraine um, and uh, particularly in dislodging the the, the previous uh, prosecutor general of uh, of the Ukraine, who apparently was considered to be corrupt by the State Department. So, um, you know, they felt they had to get her out of the way. Uh, and, of course, ultimately they did. And she, she actually she was brought back to the United States and so, replaced by a te- temporary uh, uh, envoy, Ambassador Taylor. So if you're Mitch McConnell, how are you reacting to this new information? Well, I, I, I think he's sort of unshakable in his belief that the president will be... Um, will be, uh, uh, if not exonerated, at least just acquitted. Um, I haven't, I, I, he seems unshakable in that, in that conviction. And I think it may take, uh, you know, much more dramatic uh, revelations to, um, uh, to break that, that hold that he has on the, uh, on the Senate. Uh, as the majority leader, he controls the floor schedule of the Senate. Uh, he has an enormous amount of influence. Um, and unless he's unless uh, the Democrats under uh, Senator Schumer are able to pick up four Republicans uh, to uh, get uh, a total of 51 senators voting, let's say for the take for the hearing of uh, of witnesses, uh, I think McConnell's you know certainly got the ship under under control. Uh, may be exonerated, may be acquitted, uh, damage done, or again, is oh. it, does it depend on who you ask? Time will tell on that one. 
Uh, I think certainly, I think the president personally believes that if there were some procedure for unacquitting, for, excuse me, of unimpeaching him, he would actually would try to exercise that. Uh, I think he he is he feels very badly hurt by the impeachment. Uh, I think he hopes uh, he wishes it would go away. I think he understands even dimly uh, the fact that history will uh, consign him to the same corner of presidential history as Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. And I don't think that President Trump thinks that he's in very good company there. Uh, do you think there will be any surprises uh, through the, the rest of this process? Uh, many predicted all of this, uh, impeached uh, in the House, acquitted in the Senate. Uh, do you see another shoe dropping here? I think it's entirely possible. Uh, I, I think that, that, uh, that the, I'm not, not sure there will be an avalanche of, of new information, but, but, but it's certainly been trickling out. Um, and the, the question is whether, you know, in the aggregate, it's, it's going to make any difference. But certainly, uh, I, I anticipate there'll be more revelations. Uh, so what is the process now? Uh, as you said, formalities right now into next week before this actually gets underway. What happens, right. ne- what, what happens well, next week? What will happen will be that the impeachment managers, the seven Democratic House members, will make their case for, um, for, the, impeach- for the conviction uh, of President Trump. Um, and then President Trump's attorneys uh, will make the case for, uh, for acquittal. And that's going to take quite a long time. The senators will have to listen to these presentations, not ask questions, remain in their seats. Uh, the only reading material that I have in front of me are the articles of impeachment from the House um, and the, uh, uh, and the uh, documents from the White House. How short can Mitch McConnell make this trial? Well, I think initially he really wanted a kind of quick and dirty job, but I think he realizes now that he can't do that. Um, I, I really see this going probably, in, you know, well toward the end of February. So basically the information that came out today in regard to uh, this watchdog, um, again, probably not likely to, to change any minds at this point? No, I, I, I think it's more sort of a, a, a process of attrition of little by little, small bits of information uh, becoming increasingly uh, in- incriminating for, for, for things that the president did. But my sense is that the allegiance of the Republicans uh, is to the president is so unshakable, largely because certainly uh, Republican senators from strongly Republican states that gave a great deal of uh, contributed a lot to President uh, Trump's uh, uh, voting totals, um, you know, they're, they're very much trapped uh, in that situation. You know, they understand how their constituents feel, and it would take some, a revelation of monumental uh, importance to kind of break that, uh, that, that chain of allegiance. Ross, can't let you go without asking you your comments on what we're seeing happening in Russia. Surprise shakeup, Russian Prime Minister and his cabinet stepped down uh, in order to uh, consolidate power with Putin and such. How is America viewing this? Well, I think any, any country has to, would have to be concerned with this. I think, you know, back in... Back in 2000, when Putin first uh, became the head, you know, became the head of Russia, I think I think people were hopeful, uh, but I think increasingly as time as, t- as time has passed, I think it, it looks much more as if Putin is aspiring to the uh, to the status of Joseph Stalin. Whose side will Donald Trump take in this discussion? I think we can count on his being on Putin's side. Will he look for similar control at home? Will he praise this? He's talked about his, his. Uh, he certainly shared his thoughts of dictatorships in the past. Oh, I, I think that I think that Trump and Putin are are joined at the hip. Uh, I think that that Trump uh, fully expects and hopes um, that the uh, that the Russian email hackers will be at work during the election, uh, sowing confusion within the American electorate. 
Uh, I think he believes that works to his advantage, and certainly, if not if 2016 is is any uh, is any example, it really does seem to work. Ross Baker has been with us, distinguished professor of political science, Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Thank you so much for the time, Ross. Much appreciated. Sure thing, Scott. Bye bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, in a surprise shakeup, the Russian PM and his cabinet have stepped down. Yesterday, uh, what exactly happened and what does this have to do with Putin try to con- trying to consolidate his power and perhaps run for the position himself, uh, adding more responsibility to that? Uh, let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, has been a, forest co- a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail and Post Media. And the current commentary, which uh, you'll find on the Global News website, Putin's plan for unlimited political power. To talk more about all of this, uh, Matthew Fisher is with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Uh, first of all, let's talk about exactly what uh, Putin is trying to do here. What's his objective? Well, his objective, it looks like, is to rule forever. Uh, he uh, has ruled a long time already. He began his tenure on December the 31st, 1999. Uh, he's already, because of the Russian constitution, had to switch to being prime minister for a couple of years in the middle of his uh, 20-year reign, uh, and then come back to being president when it was allowed. He doesn't want to do that anymore. He doesn't want that uh, slate of hand. Uh, uh, what he's planning to do now is just go straight ahead. It's not exactly clear, because he's given himself plenty of options, uh, what uh, how this is going to play out. But he will either be the head of the parliament, he will be the prime minister, or he will be the head of some kind of new Supreme Council. There's going to be a referendum on this. They haven't given a date, but it's expected very soon. Uh, And uh, that will be passed by what is basically a rubber stamp parliament. United Russia Party, which is controlled by uh, Putin, uh, controls that parliament. And uh, parties favorable to him have since the day uh, he came in. Uh, Why he wants this, Scott? Uh, We don't really in the West uh, understand the Russian psyche in terms of power. He's been in a long time. Why does he want to rule longer? Uh, And why does he feel, since he seems to have absolute power anyway, why does he want to fix things so that he has uh, even more power, power to uh, uh, go to war, powers to uh, uh, dominate the, the economy that he and his friends already dominate, That part we don't get, but certainly he thinks he's 67 now. Remember when he came in, he was in his 40s and seemed young and dynamic. There have been questions about his health. Would he proceed because of that? Well, he's clearly decided he wants to go at least another eight or ten years, probably longer than that. Does he have complete support within that government that he's just disbanded? He had pretty solid support within the government that he just disbanded, but evidently it wasn't enough. He wants even more support. Uh, But the fact is he asked all his cabinet to resign at once when there were no specific issues confronting any of them that would have required resignation. And he required the resignation of Dmitry Medvedev, his his prime minister, at the same time. Uh, And so he has a totally clean slate with this referendum and whatever job title he chooses to assume uh, he will have a whole new group i suspect the new group will include quite a few of the most loyal of the loyal from the old group and he will proceed and uh, he is going to work on he says big infrastructure projects some of them have been successful some not and uh, he is going to develop the military more Uh, He keeps crowing about a new Russian missile, a hypersonic missile. Meanwhile, we have uh, submarine accidents, uh, aircraft carrier fires, uh, all kinds of problems with their new uh, jet fighter aircraft uh, to the point where they've just stopped trying to build some of them. Uh, But he boasts again and again about one thing, these hypersonic missiles, which he says the West doesn't have. That may be a real boast. He may have a missile that nobody else has, but I can tell you the Americans and the Chinese are working very hard on it. How are Russians reacting to this? Are they willing to move backwards? 
Well, I've only spoken to uh, a couple of them since it happened. I lived uh, in Russia for a long time, including the early years of Vladimir Putin, and went back uh, several times since. Uh, support for him has flagged, but uh, it's the kind of support that even when it's flagging, uh, most Western politicians would really like. We've got uh, in the West, uh, I don't know the latest figures, but Donald Trump in the United States, uh, despite what Canadians may think of the matter, uh, still has fairly strong support uh, for a sitting president. Justin Trudeau, for whatever Canadians might think, has much lower support really in Canada than Donald Trump has in the States. And then you've got Putin, Putin, who always seems to register at 60 or 70 or 80 percent popularity. Uh, Hard to judge with Russian polls, but I think they're fairly accurate from anecdotal evidence that I have. Uh, But those polls have shown a deterioration in the last year. This probably has something to do with it. The Russian economy, which is just about totally oil-based, has not developed at all in other realms and uh, is not going well. So when you hear complaints about Putin, uh, we say this in the West, too, when a politician gets in trouble, it's always because the economy hasn't been very good. Well, uh, that may be the reason that Putin is doing what he's doing. Now, the Russian economy is basically a one-trick pony, and we all know about the climate debate and where all of that is heading 10, 20, 30 years from now. And Russia has all of its eggs in that basket. What about the timing of all of this? Why now? That do, also... Do, does it have anything to do with what's happening in the United States? Uh, I don't think it does, although we could talk, you could devote a whole show to Putin's uh, relationship with Donald Trump and how he seems to have cast a spell over the U.S. president. Uh, from before he was elected, the U.S. president was elected in 2016. I think this is an internally driven thing. I think you've seen support eroding. There are questions about the economy. Uh, His relationship with Trump uh, continues to uh, be uh, intensely interesting. Uh, The Ukrainian part of this affair that has Trump uh, um, facing impeachment There are Russian strands and tentacles to that, without a doubt. Um, There's a lot of talk Russia has already started trying to interfere with yet another election. Uh, It is said by many that uh, Putin and the Russians and disinformation uh, got Trump elected last time. I have no idea whether that's true, but certainly they were trying. Uh, They may try that again. But a direct link I don't see. I see also a way... He wants to fill some of the gap, the power vacuum that's been left in countries like Syria by some of uh, Trump's decisions. Uh, The Russian Navy was off with the Iranian Navy and the Chinese Navy just before all all this stuff with Iran and Iraq with the United States. Uh, They had a major exercise just off the shore of Iran in the northern Indian Ocean. Uh, So He's interested in the United States, uh, but I don't think it's a very long-winded answer, Scott. Uh, I don't think that is the real cause of, of this particular thing, grabbing power, wanting to hold on to it for uh, another 10 or 20 years when he's already been in power for 20 years. He's next to Stalin now in terms hmm. of his length as, uh, as a leader uh, after the end of the Tsars, and uh, he will pass if he gets another decade in there. He will be passing uh, Joseph Stalin. So how is the U.S. viewing this? Well, I think uh, for once Trump is not talking about it. Previously, he would have said that's a great move. It shows what a great guy that, he is. That was my next point. I mean, is this something he, hey, this is a great idea. I should be trying this well, back Well, he home. probably thinks it's a great idea. But, Scott, the president has so many problems right now. Uh, with the impeachment every day there's more evidence i still think he's going to weather the storm because those republicans need trump to get reelected. Uh, they dominate the senate in the way they didn't the house so the articles of impeachment have uh, been moved from a democratic house to a republican um, uh, senate uh, i think he's going to weather this storm unless there's more evidence we don't know about every day there is more evidence that's a problem for him but he's so preoccupied with that And now he has his problems uh, in Syria, but especially with Iran. Uh, Will he go to war? What will Iran do? Because I don't think 
this is over. A lot of people are uh, sort of breathing more easily that, well, we've got somehow past the idea of Iran in the United States and the larger regional war there. I'm not sure that we're past that. I think we're going to see a lot of action from the Iranians and bloody action over the next few months or, or years. But Trump is thinking about that a bit. He's thinking about his own political fortunes in the United States, uh, where the economy is also strong. Uh, and uh, is Putin to- is is Putin doing this because he knows the U.S. is pretty distracted at this point? Is that is that the reason for the timing? Uh, I don't think that's the reason for the timing. It, of course, will have been noted, uh, and uh, Putin will definitely want Trump to get reelected this fall. There's no doubt about that. But no, I think the timing, Scott, is a domestic matter, uh, and I can't. I don't understand why they're doing it myself now. And if I can't really understand it in the Russian context fully, then I can't understand how the United States would uh, have an influence on that. Because after all, all, all politics ultimately is tr- uh, local. And uh, Putin does require the support of a certain number of people, even though he's a dictator. Uh, and uh, that's what this is about. Some of his cronies may have been getting uneasy. They've made vast, many, many billions of dollars, his inner circle, out of him. Uh, you know, if somebody new comes in, they will clean house, uh, and they and their money will all be vulnerable. Russia has a history of throwing those people in jail or treating them worse than that. And, and so all of this is part of the matrix uh, that makes me think it's uh, something happening at home. I think it's also just basically, Scott, the idea the guy wants to rule for a long time. Now is the time if he wants to set it up legally, and I put quotations around that, maybe now is the time to move uh, with the Russian parliament, which he controls, to get what he wants so he can rule another 10 years, 20 years. Is the world concerned that he is trying to do this and trying to rule another 10 years or so? I think the world is so uh, preoccupied now with their own problems and with terrorism and with the drama in the United States and with emerging China that Russia gets a bit of a free pass. And what it does in foreign policy now, a lot of it is just mischief. It doesn't have great military tools. Russia's population is going down uh, quite rapidly. I think it's got the lowest birth rate in the world, except for Japan, certainly among larger countries. There are all sorts of things going wrong in Russia. And so I don't think, except for the Eastern Europeans and maybe some people in the Middle East, it matters that much. But it does matter in the Middle East, in the Baltic states and in Poland, because Putin's rewriting the history of the Second World War in Poland to lay everything on the Poles, really, rather than the Nazis uh, in terms of the relationship with Russia in the early or the, uh, the Soviet Union during the early years of the war. Uh, quite puzzling, but uh, because it's factually just totally incorrect, but uh, it doesn't matter. And the Baltic states all the time are getting pushed around by Russia heightened military activity in the Black Sea. He's already taken, of course, Crimea and the Donbass and continues to stir the pot uh, in Ukraine. This is all mischief rather than really the behavior of a, of a superpower. Mm. And it's not a superpower, but at home, he has to say it is. That's why he talks about supersonic or hypersonic missiles. Hypersonic missiles go five times the speed of sound. And if they can be aimed properly, uh, really are highly effective and will put all of us on our back, on the back heels of our feet. Uh, it's, a, it's all an interesting development, but Russia is Russia, which means it's powerful internally. Uh, it's not the power it was overseas. So, Scott, I don't think we're as afraid, but we're fascinated not only by Donald Trump, but by guys like Putin. Hmm. How do they uh, remain in power so long? try to understand the motivations for wanting to. I mean, who would want the job of uh, um, running a mess like Russia for decades uh, when you could be using some of the billions of dollars that you've appropriated uh, to have a nice holiday, go into retirement? Hmm, Good point. Matthew Fisher is with us, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Matthew, you brought up uh, China. Quick question before you go. Your thoughts on the hoopla yesterday in regard to China and the United States signing phase one of a trade deal. What does this mean? 
Well, it means personally that my stocks are going to do well because a lot of them are invested <laughs> in things for that matters. But in the larger world, uh, I suppose it is a sign that Trump, uh, the Trump White House, and Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese leader, are willing to do business. And that is a good thing for the world. Uh, but the Americans really have a, what you might call a two-track thing going here because at the same time they're trying to counter Chinese uh, military buildups in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And uh, to me, that's more fascinating because how that one plays out will determine who controls world shipping. But this is a positive development, not that great for Canada. Canada, the, the Trudeau government, uh, I think it's a balmy idea, but they continue to try to talk about a trade agreement for themselves with China. I think the Russian, or rather the Americans, will have soaked up a lot of the gravy uh, with this. I don't think it's good for Canadian farmers, for example, that there's such a big uh, agricultural component to the American deal. That means uh, less money for Canada, and it means we're way behind in the queue. We were behind before, but with this U.S. deal being quite big, there's an awful lot more to uh, negotiate with the U.S., though. And I think uh, a lot more, uh, far more bricks are going to be thrown through the windows uh, between China and Russia over the next, uh, China and the United States over the next year or two before we get the resolution. Uh, on the whole, good. Uh, on the whole, not so good, probably, for Canada. Uh, how can uh, China and the United States um, um, negotiate the way they are, uh, come to a, 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 a prospective deal for phase one, as they've just announced? Well, all of the issues regarding the Huawei CFO and the two Michaels are still at play. I mean, at the end of the day, the Huawei CFO is still in uh, a Canadian jail waiting extradition. Does that conversation happen between these two at all? I mean, after all, it is America that, it, that it instigated all of this. Does that, does that come up in these discussions? It may well have. We won't know this. But we think that pressure by the Canadian government may get the Americans to act on our behalf as agents to try to get... Uh, the two Canadians freed and uh, and uh, dropped the charges in the United States, uh, the Huawei charges. Uh, I, I don't think Canada figures at all, really. We may get an advantage out of this trade deal uh, if there is a secret codicil to this deal, something we don't know about, uh, that says in return uh, they'll drop the charges. And sometimes with these things, it takes a while for the other shoe to drop because it's designed so that nobody gets embarrassed. So Trump, to avoid embarrassment about seeming to uh, give in on this, uh, it may be that the charges are dropped in eight weeks or 15 weeks, so there isn't quite the same direct connection. But this hope of Canada that the U.S. will come to bat for us, I think two things are at play here. Canada doesn't really matter that much to the United States, but the second one is, the prime minister has, he's just accused uh, Trump indirectly of being responsible for the deaths of those uh, 57 Canadians on yep. the Ukrainian jetliner that was shot down over Iran. He's mocked the president uh, uh, at the last uh, summit meeting of the Western leaders. Uh, Trump has a very long memory, and I don't think he's going to be doing any favors for Canada. But as part of this deal, uh, maybe with China directly, those charges get dropped. If they do, presumably the Canadians get free. Uh, and if that happens, I think the Canadian government will boast a lot about it. But mm. I don't think uh, they'll have had anything to do with it. It, isn't, uh, it is, might be a positive uh, result uh, that has nothing to do, actually, with what Canada has done. Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, has been a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail and Post Media, and the uh, you can read his current column in uh, on the Global website, Putin's Plan for Unlimited Political Power. Matthew Fisher has been with us. Matthew, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Very nice speaking with you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots to talk about uh, with Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh, in a very recent tweet, Peter McKay has announced he is in for the leadership of the Conservative Party. And uh, Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. 
My pleasure, Scott. Before we get into uh, all of the the news of the day, federal politics, I wanted to ask you about the the teacher's situation as well. But prior to that, uh, the memorial going on right now for John Crosby, uh, your thoughts on his passing and what he meant to Canadian politics? My God, that's quite the segue of three items. Um, I know. (laughs) But yeah, no, um, John Crosby was obviously a controversial figure to a lot of people, basically because he was not politically correct and he spoke his mind at a time when it was more acceptable, of course. I mean, today, a politician like that couldn't exist in any political party. But I was lucky enough, like a lot of conservatives, to have met John Crosby. I met him a couple times, and he was always a, a pleasant, affable fellow. He did a lot of good for Newfoundland. There are many people in his home province, whether they were conservatives or not, who always appreciated the way that he stood up for them, that he battled on their behalf. They were frustrated with him, for example, when the fisheries, you know, he had to cut back on a lot of them, and that obviously caused a lot of problems and some pretty violent attitudes. But at the same time, he was also around when Hibernia oil started up. So that actually created a whole new regime for Newfoundland to create industry, make profits, etc. Crosby was an intriguing fellow, a very nice man, good person, very intelligent, very witty, I mean, people obviously remember, and you know, certainly Hamiltonians remember very well, yep. his tête-à-tête with Sheila Copps. And although, ironically, as the years went along, and Copps has acknowledged this, they became friends, and he actually, this being Crosby, wrote the uh, introduction or the foreword to her most recent book, which was published, I think, about 15, 16-odd years ago. So, you know, that was certainly made up. He was just an, in- he was an endearing fellow, an intriguing fellow, and someone that, quite frankly we will probably never see again in Canadian politics. All right, um, and here we go with another uh, hard turn here. Let's talk about the teacher situation uh, in Ontario right now with the teachers' unions. Um, And I did a a bit of a commentary on this. Do you think support for teachers' unions are waning simply because, if you're like me, uh, with a a, a student in elementary and in secondary, uh, and secondary, you've been through this multiple times. I remember going through it as a student when I was a teenager. Do do you think support is waning just simply because we've been through it so many times, and it's the same old, same old, no matter what the government of the day is? Well, from a partisan position, I hope so. But in a realistic position, yes, I, I do think so. And some polls that have come out in previous years, and I'm not sitting in front of any right now, I, I've read them, and people are more and more frustrated with unions in general. And this also includes people who are members of unions as well. It doesn't mean that they don't agree with the basic concept or theory behind a union, which is to defend the rights of workers. Theoretically, that's how it's supposed to happen. And obviously, in this case, for a teacher's union, the rights of teachers. And there's lots of positives there. Sure, absolutely. But realistically, the unions, much like every other entity that goes to the other side of a bargaining table, is there for its own purpose and its own selfish reasons. And teachers' unions have handled things, I think, extremely poorly in the past few strikes. I mean, what we're seeing now, for example, in Ontario, where we have, you know, uh, yet another public school teacher strike, or or two of them, as a matter of fact, because another one was announced today, plus a Catholic school teacher strike, I think people are just getting sick and tired of this. Certainly parents would be, because obviously they have to find some sort of daycare or some sort of program to deal with their children or to take care of their children for at least a day or two as they have to go to work, earn a living so that they can continue to lead their lives on a daily basis. It's very, very disrupting for people. And while it's easy to point the finger at the government all the time, I think in this case, based on the negotiations I've heard, sure, if you want to argue, has the Ford government been perfect during these negotiations? No. And I don't even think they would acknowledge that either. But have the unions been this perfect entity either? They certainly think they have. And whenever they come on shows like yours, they basically claim everything under the sun is, is going on all to the benefit of teachers, of parents, of the, of the province in general. When generally, when generally speaking, Scott, it isn't really beneficial. No. They're not holding things. They're holding up our children's education. Not the government, ladies and gentlemen. The unions are holding it up. And consistently... They are so well-paid, teachers in this province and in this country, so well-paid. 
and yet they continue to claim, you know, that, you know, a 1% increase or a 2% increase in their salaries is not enough, and all the benefits they get, and the enormous pensions they have through the pension fund. It's unbelievable to the point that, yes, I'm not surprised that a lot of opinion polls are showing that people are tiring of listening to the rhetoric from, from teachers' unions, and that a lot of families in general are just frustrated by this situation. If you look at it realistically and not through with rose-colored glasses, you'll see what the problem is. Um, obviously, the union will keep saying, and, and this is what, what just stuns me, is that for some reason they have sold the narrative that it's not a labor union looking after the teachers, that it is, yeah. in fact, a student union. And they're the only union that's been able to sell that. I mean, to me, that's like the UAW or Unifor going on strike because we're not building a good enough Chevy. <laughs> um you know, yeah. and again, when you're when you're when you're splitting hairs here, you're talking. You know, with the elementary system, you're talking about a difference of class size of, I, I believe, one, and we're talking about three students, a difference of three students for the secondary uh, school yeah. system. Like these are not deal breakers here. No, they are. I like your example, but yes, you're right. It's interesting that some unions have been able to isolate it for particular things, but again, that's how branding or buzzwords or various other things are created. It's a whole form of advertising or messaging. Political parties do it as well. It's not unique. So the basically, as you said, and you're quite right, the teachers union have basically tried to reinvent themselves, so to speak, into a students union or a student union. Yeah, like they're, they're, they're working in the best interests of the parents and the students, which is not true. Which isn't true at all. It's nonsense. Now, obviously, some families might think so, but the vast majority of Ontario families, no matter what they think ideologically, look at this as basically their hands are being tied. They're ham-fisted. They don't have any say in this. And quite honestly, if you ask most parents today, do we really want to have a second day of public school teachers going out on strike? I don't think there would be many hands raised. I really strongly doubt it. And again, you know, not to take away from the great work that our teachers do and, and, and all of that, but it, it just seems that, you know, the emotion is getting in the way of common sense here. And, and as a parent, as a student uh, in the past, uh, I, for one, am very much tired of it. Let's move on to the conservative leadership. Uh, sure. Peter McKay finally announcing that he's in. Does that change things moving forward, that he is such a front runner? Does that change who else jumps into the race? Well, hold on a sec. I mean, not necessarily. Early polls show before he jumped in that he was hovering in the low numbers. I don't think he's necessarily going to be the front runner when the first polls come out, but certainly he'll be among the top three. I don't doubt that at all. Does it change anything? It depends. I mean, we don't have a full slate of candidates out as of yet, so we have to see. Uh, based on the people that we know are running, uh, I think it's going to be a very tight race. There are certain people like Rona Ambrose, who initially said yesterday, or at least according to La Presse, she wasn't going to go in, which was reported by the National Post. A few hours later, they had to switch it because apparently she hasn't made up her mind. Um, I think there's still a long way to go yet, but certainly Peter McKay will be a formidable foe, no doubt about it. I mean, the man has enormous amounts of political experience. He was the last federal progressive conservative party of Canada leader, as we know. He was a cabinet minister in various capacities for uh, Stephen Harper, my old friend and boss. So he certainly has a lot of experience in politics. At the same time, though, he has some drawbacks. His history with the old PCs, including at the very, very end before the merger, although people obviously give him some amount of credit for creating that merger with Stephen Harper in December 2003, you know, there are a lot of hard feelings that still exist from older members. Plus, as well, P Peter McKay is typically known as a red Tory or a left-leaning conservative in his ideology. It doesn't mean that he won't build bridges with blue Tories and hasn't in the past. I'm I know he has. But at the same time, they know that his ideology is not necessarily consistent with, say, Stephen, Stephen Harper's vision for the party, uh, Andrew Scheer's vision for the party, or even Pierre Polyevre's soon-to-be vision for the party if he chooses to run as well. So when you put all of that together, it doesn't mean that Peter McKay is going to be wildly rejected by certain wings and not by others, but there will, the, he brings a lot of baggage to the table. Sounds like he's he, not a favorite of yours. No, he's not. Yeah. But he wouldn't be. I mean, yeah. ideologically. Because he's too far to the center for you. He's too far to the center, and center-left in certain ways. It doesn't mean I have anything 
personally yeah. against him. No, I understand. I've known McKay for years. He's a, he's a nice person. I have no problems with him personally, and I have no truck or trade with him, but he's just not my type of candidate, not whatsoever. But is that not what the party needs right now? You were talking about how, you know, the old school, he may not appeal to them, those that liked Andrew Scheer, but we all know what happened to Andrew Scheer. Uh, is this about holding line to your, uh, holding strong to your conservative values, or is it about beating Justin Trudeau? Well, hold on. It's not just Andrew Scheer. It's also people who supported Harper as well. There's going to be a lot of people who supported Harper who are not going to align with Peter McKay. Right. We have to face So where is Stephen Harper in all of this? Uh, we understand. His, his, what is his role here? I don't know, uh, to be perfectly honest. And um, I haven't spoken with him, so I don't know. But, I mean, we know what came out. Maybe you've discussed it on your show. He just recently left the Conservative Fund yes. <clears throat> the other day. What, is, what does that say? It's hard to say. <clears throat> if you look at, I mean, obviously the reports that came out, and this is just simply from news organizations, it's not me, I really don't know, are suggesting that he wants to block the run of Jean Charest, who is considering running for the conservative leadership as well. However, there's a lot of conservatives like me who don't really feel that Charest is going to be much of a threat, because whereas I was critical of Peter McKay for being a red Tory, I'm more That's really red. even being a conservative. I don't even think he is. <laughs> exactly. I, I think you're going to have a hard time selling that one. Yeah, exactly. But So I don't know if that's it. Now, certainly I think that Harper wants to ensure that the political vision that he created over his years as Conservative Party leader and as Prime Minister for nearly 10 years is preserved in some fashion. I get that part of it, and maybe that's what he wants to do. As a member of the Conservative Fund, he can't be very politically active or politically vocal, so maybe that had some role. Of it. So him stepping away allows him to put some support behind a candidate, whatever he chooses? Maybe, and I don't know if he's going to support anyone. Who knows? But the other thing to also keep in mind is that Stephen Harper has been a private citizen for a long period of time. Yes, he has made political statements. Yes, he has written books. Yes, he has spoken in favor or helped out people like Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. We know all that. But he's not been a huge political activist for many years, and... Maybe himself, he just wants to ensure that he has a little bit of a break between him and the Conservative Party so that if he wants to speak his mind, write pieces, appear on TV and radio or whatever else, he can do it freely. Or maybe he just wants to basically be, like a lot of others are, an elder statesman for the party, like a Brian Mulroney, for example, who, again, hasn't said much either. But one assumes that people will go to him, they'll want quotes, they'll want statements, and this allows Harper a little bit of leeway to discuss things like that. So that may be the break for Stephen Harper, private citizen, versus Stephen Harper, former conservative prime minister. How does the party feel about Ronna Ambrose and her hesitation at this point? Uh, how do you explain that? And would she be farther, would she be closer to the right than what Peter McKay is? Is McKay more left than she is? In my own personal impression, I would say that Rona is a little bit more to the center-right than McKay is. I wouldn't say it's you know, there's a wild right. difference between the two, but yeah, a little bit more so. I, I think that Rona looks at fiscal issues a little more responsibly than Peter does, but Peter is not by any means like, a, he's not a leftist, no, not no. a socialist. He just, yep. he, his view of fiscal conservatism is a bit different than hers. So how will, the party, how will the party come to terms with this? Because it's obvious that, you, that the party needs someone more to the center to appeal to those that can beat Justin Trudeau, yet you, you don't want to go too far. So, I mean, you know, you've got Peter McKay who, with what you just described, I would say is a pretty good candidate as a result of that. Now, I, mm-hmm. certainly, do, I certainly don't have the, the, uh, the political uh, knowledge that you do in, in backroom uh, uh, movement and such, but still, to, compared to what the party was had in, in, what, it, uh, in, in what it needed to, to, to push the election over the edge, yeah. it, isn't that the direction they should be going in as opposed to someone who's between the center and Andrew Scheer? Well, it all depends on your perspective. I mean, obviously, for me, I, as a per, as a not like I'm not a party member, so I have nothing to do with this party. I basically I did work for them. I've done a lot of stuff for them. I was Harper's former speechwriter, but I actually haven't held a membership card as I think I once told you in about 15, 16 years. It's been a long time, and that includes during the time I was in the prime minister's office. I was not a paid-up member. I, it wasn't required. I didn't have to be, and I chose not to be. 
when I was basically... Do you mind if I ask you why? Well, I have never... Like, I don't mind putting out signs and various things, and I have most elections. I've always felt that there should be some break between someone who is in the media, writing or speaking. Yeah, I I feel the same way, yep. So that was my break. I mean, there's some, like my friend Laurie Goldstein, you know, of the Toronto Sun, who has taken a wild break. He refuses to put up signs or do anything. I haven't gone that far. Putting up signs for me is perfectly fine. But being a paid-up member where you're actually going into your pocket and spending to claim that you're a member of a party, I don't think that's necessary. But, um, look, in terms of how this is all going to go, it really depends on your perspective of what you want out of a leader. You're saying that Peter McKay, at least this is what you told me, Mm -hmm. seems like a sensible person to have for the Conservative Party to sort of bridge both elements and sort of push it towards the center. I can, though, make a very easy argument that Peter McKay's vision for the party has long since passed. I don't think that there are 30 to 40 percent of the members are red Tories today. I think that is completely nuts. I've never I have never seen a number like that. The most I would believe is maybe low 20s. And even so, I don't think it's that high. Um, But whatever the numbers may be, I think that conservatives generally and Canadians in particular need to be sold a message by a political party rather than just pandering to the points and views of ideas of people or average people who just go out and vote. In well, that's words, a very good point because it's become more of a feeling now than it has policy, so that's a valid point. Well, and it's also problematic because, unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the Conservative Party now, their radar is focused exactly on what people want because they went through the Andrew Scheer period. It really wasn't as bad as everyone made it out to be, as I've told you and others, but Dave basically created a a scenario where it was just awful, so they want to ensure it doesn't happen again. If you support something like incremental conservatism, which Stephen Harper successfully used for three elections, which bridges red Tory values, left-leaning conservatism, and blue Tory values, right-leaning conservatism, and creates a melding pot of ideas, I think that would work very well, and I don't see why... Mr. Shear never bothered to do it, and I think it's unfortunate that uh, many of the new le- many of the new candidates aren't considering it either. It's the way of the future, and it was the like it was a successful for us in the in the past. It was successful in the present. It can be successful in the future, but they have to go back to it. Uh, out of time, but we're going to talk about this uh, next time we chat. Hopefully, Michael Tobe has been with us. Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Peter McKay announcing he is in the race. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.